Welcome to the Graphic Audio Behind the Mic Podcast. These podcasts will feature author interviews and behind-the-scenes interviews with our cast, directors, and crew. And look who's back. It's Mike Cole, author of the Shadow Ops series. He's back with director Ken Action Jackson as they talk about his new series, The Reawakening Trilogy, and in particular, the first book of the series, Gemini Cell, which will be produced in graphic audio. This is Ken Jackson. Uh, the director of Shadow Ops Trilogy and the Shadow Ops prequel, and Mike Cole. How are you doing, sir? Good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for coming down. So, um, I am working on Gemini Cell, the first book of the prequel, um, and it's fascinating because there's an introduction of the idea. Uh, well, let me just back up. Let me say that the Shadow Ops Trilogy, we were in a world where uh, magic had reawakened in the world. People were conversant with that idea, but it was still kind of a behind the scenes. Uh, the military was kind of uh, uh, controlling uh, how much information got out there about these magic operators that were in the world and was actually trying to um, make sure that it was dealt with in a, in a controlled fashion, you know. Um, but in this, so people knew about it, but it wasn't really open in society in a, in a grand way. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes, it is. All right. But then in this series, you've taken us back. Uh, Timeline-wise, how many years before the events of the Shadow Ops trilogy would you say uh, we are in the prequel? So as magic re-enters into the world, it accelerates. So it's, it's, it increases uh, geometric, not additive. Mm-hmm. So you can, readers can assume it's, it's, it's actually not that far ahead, about five to seven years before the uh, uh, block incident, which uh, inaugurates the SOC, uh, which the SOC, which you guys are familiar with from the original trilogy. Yeah, so the Supernatural Operations Corps. Correct. Yeah. So this is magic is just beginning to come back into the world. Um, what po- folks who, who've seen me interviewed before and heard me speak about this before understand is that there's an orbital theory that the series works on and that the, the source, which is the wellspring of magic and our world, the, our, our, the home world, the earth that we know, the solar system that we know, the universe that we know, orbit one another. And so that every thousand years they come close enough so that magic is bleeding through the barrier between those two planes. And that's when people start coming up latent. So Gemini Cell is beginning at the beginning of that uh, millennial window opening. So you're starting to see magic bleeding back into the world and the government is beginning to react to it. Reawakening. That's right, yeah. the reawakening. Yeah. Um, so our protagonist is a Navy SEAL. Um, our protagonist in the first series was a, uh, a soldier, uh, an Army guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Army helo pilot. Yeah. And uh, in the first story, uh, I remember we talked about your interest in bringing diversity uh, into the literature. Uh, um, and y- you had cast, uh, y- the protagonist was an African-American. Um, this guy's a white guy. 
<laughs> yeah, he sure is. He sure is. But um, uh, as readers will see um, as they go through it, uh, you know, first of all, I I didn't want to do diversity for diversity's sake. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that Oscar Britton was an African-American in the first book, um, I mean, I was really, really thrilled to be giving underrepresented uh, people a voice in science fiction and fantasy. But the reality of it was is that I really needed someone who was completely unmoored from the world they were in so that he would be in love with the institutions that sheltered him so that when he lost the army as his home it would really resonate right and i remember you and i spoke about that that uh, a black guy growing up in vermont yeah i mean nothing could be more isolating right that's right um so uh again it was super important to me that um the protagonist's ethnicity uh enhance the story but not feel stapled on and i don't want to feel like i'm trying to score political points um, I want it to feel organic and integrative and natural to the story. So, yes, uh, Schweitzer is a white guy. However, as you look at the cast, um, you'll see that, uh, you know, we have an Afghani uh, national who's in the story and uh, his culture is is represented. And as you move through the sequels, I have points of view uh, from a, a Haitian woman. I have points of view from a, a native Canadian indigenous person. Um, in the later book. So diversity is definitely something that I pay a lot of attention to in my work, and it's definitely something that's super important to me to represent, but it's equally important to me to make sure that I'm I'm doing it in a way that is supportive and serving the narrative and not stapling it on to make a political point. Got it, yeah. And in fact, uh, the main character, Jim Schweitzer, mm-hmm. his uh, best friend is um, Steve Chang, right. who... Uh, is being played for graphic audio by a wonderful um, Korean-American actor by the name of Tony Nam. Oh, awesome. Yeah. He's coming in tomorrow, actually, to record for wow, I can't wait to hear it. That's yeah, fantastic. I'm, I'm looking forward to <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, no, he's, he's a very good actor. Yeah, and, and look, this is important because the reality of it is is the military is a massive, sprawling, and um, it's the great leveler, right? It, it it touches all levels of society. Rich people are there, poor people are there, men and women are there. And the military now, with the with the repeal of "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," with the lifting of the bar on women in combat, is more diverse and more available to all sectors of society than ever before. I mean, look, Ken. One of the things you have to remember is I, I grew up as a scrawny nerd. That's not an affectation. I'm not making that up. That's who I was, um, and. I was the most unlikely person to ever serve in the military. And I am so, so glad that I did. And it changed my life in such an incredibly positive way. And the thought that I would have missed that opportunity because I would have felt that the military was not a place where I could belong, it frightens me. And I and I thank my lucky stars that, you know, I didn't fall into that trap and that I believed I was able to imagine myself as a warrior enough to take on that mantle. So... It's important to me to show that diversity in my books. It's important to me that, you know, Asian Americans who read my books can think, wow, you know, I could be a SEAL too. I don't want, uh, I want to make sure that I represent the diversity that exists in our current military uh, enough that if that if I have an opportunity to inspire a reader to maybe take a chance and join up or consider joining up, um, it would be incredibly gra- gratifying on the on the border of sublime to know that my books had had a hand in that. Fantastic. You know, it's it's interesting, too, because uh, sometimes I, I feel when I'm reading your material and you spend a lot of time sort of giving us the, the internal um, 
monologue of the character in the moment, you know, how he's feeling, what he's thinking about, what's happening. And, you know, we're talking about a military guy. So um, there's there's a certain, sometimes almost like a feeling of like a military zen that I get. Uh, like I'm thinking there's this one passage I'm looking at uh, where um, his, uh, Schweitzer's handler, Eldridge, uh, is saying to him um, that uh, roughly a, a millennia ago, uh, there was another time like this where magic kind of broke out into the world. And he says, we're not sure why or how, but it raises the troubling possibility that this thing is orbital, orbital or ebbing and flowing like a tide. Mm -hmm. And that means things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. Mm -hmm. And Schweitzer felt the force of the statement swamp him. His training answered. Failure to accept reality ran ops off the rail, got good men killed. The untrained, the average, froze when disaster unfolded around them. Seals responded to events, not their perception of them. Life wasn't fair. Sometimes it didn't make sense. You didn't worry about that. You determined where the fire was coming from, and you got off the X. Which is very much to like, a, for me, you know, be here now, living in the moment, you know? taking it as it comes. I mean, there's a sort of a, a life philosophy there. Yeah, and not feeling sorry for yourself. Um, and this is super important, is that, and, and it's also the complete abdication of what I call performative action. So uh, a lot of people get very worked up in life about um, political issues or uh, artistic issues or what have you, and their 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 um, emotion or their uh, expression of that is performative. It's designed to display uh, how they feel about something and not actually take action. It's the exact opposite of what of the military ethic, which I sum up in in the words "quiet professionals." Um, and this is particularly true of the seals. I, I've worked with a lot of seals in my life, and most recently, um, I was just uh, 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 in LA, and I was working with Andy Stumpf, who is um, a former seal, and I think he has something like five bronze stars, four of which have V's. He's Purple Heart. He set the um, world record of distance flight in a wingsuit, and even now as a professional, um, I guess, skydiver. Uh, and he is the most unflappable human being I have ever met in my life. Nothing troubles him. Um, and, and that comes from where, you're saying? I think it comes from training. It comes from this... And it, what's so fascinating is this warrior zen that you're describing. Mm -hmm. I, um, I, 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 uh, I can't officially announce it, but I will hint here on the podcast that um, I'm in negotiations to do an ancient military history book as we speak, my first nonfiction book. And so I've been reading a lot of the ancient source material, Polybius, Herodotus, um, you know, Dio Cassius, Diodorus Siculus, all of these... Um, I guess all books that apparently end in U.S., right? These authors all names end in us. <laughs> yeah. um, but what's interesting is, so you're reading warrior accounts, right? Um, Firsthand warrior accounts often of people who experience combat um, thousands of years before today. And that, that understanding of how you feel doesn't matter. You must deal with reality as it confronts you and getting upset about it isn't going to help transcends time. It's exactly the same back then. I have a tattoo around my forearm uh, that says, that reads, the sea doesn't care about you. And that's a very, um, uh, it's, a, it's sort of a, a, a watchword we use, an expression we use in the Coast Guard, and also I guess they use it in the Navy. Um, and I, I keep it there, and I had it inked on me permanently as a reminder of the fact that my sufferings and my concerns and my worries in life are not invalid. But 
catering to them will not help advance me toward the goals I have. Yeah, they don't make a difference. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you, you said that uh, there's something universal from the beginning of time of, you know, when people are in that, you know, a warrior situation, the, the way you have to approach uh, um, uh, being, you know, in conflict, you know, hasn't really changed. Uh, however, the tools that we use certainly have. And uh, there's some some humor, I find, in uh, Gemini Code when we juxtapose, well, I should say that Schweitzer is a, um, I don't know if I want to call him a symbiote, but basically, you know, he, he's, he's got two souls living inside one form. Uh, and one of the souls is Ninip, who is an ancient warrior, maybe Sumerian, Egyptian, you know, he predates modern warfare, certainly, and in uh, coming into uh, being in Schweitzer, he is now having an opportunity to experience modern warfare, and uh, it's interesting, you know, he's an innocent in a certain way, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's quite a, he's not an innocent in, in, in a moral way, but in terms of just his eyes being open to, to new um, uh, realities. Uh, and there's a, a scene in there where um, uh, he has just experienced some sort of a briefing or something or, or, or uh, has, has gotten a sense of the technology that's available. And uh, he says, uh, in, in Schweitzer's mind, because they con constantly converse back and forth within their head, and we get a chance to be privy to that conversation, mm -hmm. Ninip says, your way of war is different. We have much to learn from one another, right? <laughs> yeah. And then it says, he sends an image to Schweitzer. It flashed him an image of a man, naked, save for a bronze helmet, shield, and spear. He strode out from his place in the front line of an army, beating his chest and shouting at the enemy, brandishing his spear. He shouldered the weapon, grabbed his testicles and penis, thrusting his pelvis forward, shaking his manhood at the enemy, right? And then it says, Schweitzer imagined the responses such antics would get in his day. He pictured an inf infantryman sighting down on the posturing warrior from behind a rock, taking his time to line up his sights, easing back the trigger. And as he thought it, the image materialized, blotting out his vision and the neeps at once. The American soldier braced his shoulder as his rifle bucked, the posturing warrior's bronze helmet flying, a tiny red hole appearing in his forehead, the back of his head exploding, spraying his comrades with fragments of his skull. <laughs> and it says, he felt Nanip's amazement. And James Schweitzer says, that kind of shit doesn't fly now. <laughs> I just love it. I mean, that's. I mean, hopefully, someone reading or listening to that is gonna laugh. Well, I mean, it would, and and that it was intended to. Yeah. But uh, but it, and, and that's the thing that's so fun about fantasy and science fiction is that it enables you to really, you know, answer those cool what if questions. And the reality of it is, is so much of the ethic of warfare is different now than it was uh, in the ancient world. And this is one of the cool things about doing the historical research is that um, most modern warriors uh, in today's age, I certainly never thought of myself as a killer. I thought of myself as a lifesaver, right? Mm -hmm. And especially... Um, with the Coast Guard, where life-saving really is a big piece of what we do. But in terms of my warfighting role, because the Coast Guard is absolutely a, a warfighting agency, I would never think of myself as my objective to go out there and kill other people and thus win renown. My objective was always to go out there, only kill people if I absolutely had to, to secure peace and to end war. That was the, the goal, and to, and to ensure the safety of my own country. Right. Um, and that's how military people think. But in the ancient world, it was very different. In the ancient 
ancient world, the whole idea of a country was, I mean, the the idea of a state didn't really come into existence until the Peace of Westphalia in the 17th century AD. In the ancient world, you went out there and you fought to show off, to, to gain renown, to, you know, and that's why you had those kinds of single combat duels throughout the ancient world in a lot of aboriginal societies, what we would think of as pre-modern societies, where you would go out and show your penis to somebody. Like, that That was considered an aggressive act, and it seems so ridiculous to us in this day and age, and it's so much fun. I mean, look, writing is often thankless, meticulous, exhausting lonely work and some of the really cool moments you have are when you get to really sit down puzzle out those one what if questions right bring them to life on the page and then the most gratifying part is listening to a graphic audio <laughs> production i'm serious and you get to hear actors bring voice to that oh yeah i mean there's really i think i've said this i must i hope i said this in the last podcast but it's worth saying again the two i think most sublime experiences of being a writer for me um, were when Larry Rostant did the covers, the, uh, he's, the covers that we have on the graphic audio editions of um, Control Point, Fortress Frontier, and Breach Zone, um, are they're my characters. I have described them. Larry went and found models that look like these people, dress them like these people, cut their hair like these people, and then photograph them. So I created a, a, a person mm-hmm. out of whole cloth in my mind, and now I'm staring not at a drawing, but at a photograph of them, right. which is absolutely amazing. And then listening to graphic audio productions of those first three books, um, now I'm hearing their voices. I'm hearing what they sound like when they when they grunt with exertion, when they walk, when they run, when what they sound like when they're shouting in surprise. It makes my imagination. It's it's as close as I can get, to, apart from I guess having a movie made, um, of of having my imagination become real. Yeah. And it's it's just the most gratifying experience I can have. I got to tell you, even though you know, even with material that I haven't written, because I haven't written any of this. For me, just being able to see it on the page, envision what that really kind of looks like fleshed out, and then being able to sort of shepherd that into a a reality with uh, sound effects and and underscoring that, I mean, and and have these different actors come together, uh, you know, and the cast, the people that I cast, you know, with my idea of what this actor I think can do this and that actor can do that, and then just putting all those elements together and having it show up anywhere like what I envisioned, you know, is, is very gratifying to me. You know, it's not even my words, but I'm always trying to do justice to what I feel like the author's intent is. I'm always looking at, is this true to what this author meant, you know, when I do it? Um, so it's nice to have you come through a, a, as an author and say, you know, I think you guys are, are doing me justice. Oh, no, it's it's awesome. And actually, uh, uh, this is turning rapidly into a love fest, but uh, <laughs> um, I remember listening to you before I had a deal with Graphic Audio when you narrated Peter V. Brett's Demon Cycle books. Ah. And I remember really, really liking your narration style and being excited and hoping that I got you when uh, when we did this. So it was sort of, I mean, it, I mean, I'm not really the type to fanboy, but I was super excited when I uh, when I got you as the narrator. I knew I knew I would like it before uh, you did it. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so let me see what else I want to ask you about this series. So we should first just say that okay. So this this trilogy is composed of three books. The first one is Gemini Cell. The second is Javelin Rain, right? Mm-hmm. And the third uh, is Siege Line. Siege Line. Yeah. Right. That's right. And. Um, I can't really, I don't want to talk about in this podcast anything beyond the events of this book because 
if we talk about anything, the books follow right on the heels of each other. So it's hard to to talk about the events in the second book without giving away how the first book ended or, right. you know, what led to where we are. Right, right, right. Uh, and I don't want to tell people. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I will say that I kind of looked at some of the commentary. I went to Amazon and looked at what some of the reviews were saying and people who really like your books and have read them, have, have read the, the, the first trilogy and have read the... Uh, uh, the first couple of books of the of the prequel, and one thing that they are saying is that um, it's a little dark. It's maybe even a little darker than the first trilogy. Yeah, for sure, um, and by design. And um, uh, if uh, Graphic Audio winds up, uh, I have three more books under contract that are um, uh, medieval fantasy with Tor, um, and those are darker still. Uh, my voice is is definitely getting darker as I move along. And part of that, I think, is um, the world is getting darker, I think. Uh, I've, I've never been more worried uh, in my life than I am right now about the future of the world and the future of our country. And um, you cannot be an artist and not have that kind of thing color your art. Um, I just sort of, the world to me feels more cynical and more, uh, dark and less like the good guys win, uh, as I, as I age and, um, I react to that in my art. However, comma, um, my favorite fantasy novelists, and by this, I mean a lot of people that graphic audio produces, uh, Peter V. Brett, George R. R. Martin, Joe Abercrombie, Mark Lawrence, Scott Lynch, um, uh, these are all writers, Daniel Polanski, these are all writers who fall into a subgenre known as grimdark, uh, colloquially on the internet. And these are just super, super bleak stories that are hyper-realistic, uh, where, the, you know, the, sometimes the good guys die, they die capriciously. And I, I love that honest reckoning uh, with the world. I love that feeling of the protagonists and the supporting characters that you love really being at risk. You know, not like in the, you know, comic book days of the early 90s where, yeah, they could get into a jam, but they were always going to get out of it. No one was ever going to really die. Um, but one of the things I must have is a note of hope. There has to be a redemptive end. Um, it could be slight, but it has to be in the end. The best example I can think of is Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which if uh, folks have not uh, read, it's one of the great science fiction novels, although because it's Cormac McCarthy, they sell it as a literary novel. It's a post-apocalyptic book, and reading it is like being slowly run over by a bus. It is rough, but it does sound the tiniest little expert note of hope, and um, I really struggle to do that in my own work in 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 the great reawakening trilogy the shadow ops prequel trilogy i i try to do that i try to make things seem really dark really grim to reckon honestly because i don't want to insult the intelligence of my audience my uh graphic audio listeners out there know what what the world is like um they know uh how rough it can be uh, and I want them to believe that the fantasy worlds they're getting lost in um, grapple with that honestly. Um, but I also don't want them, I don't want it to be like Requiem for a Dream, if you're familiar with that movie, um, where that was objectively an amazing movie. And I hated the way it made me feel so much, I don't ever want to see it again. And uh, so I try to do dark, but I try to steer back from, from that edge just enough to keep it hopeful. That's good. 
That's good, because uh, bleak, we don't need to pick up anything. We can just open the door. Yeah, we can just go out the door. <laughs> There's plenty of bleak to be seen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, no, I appreciate that, yeah. that, that, that note of hope. Yeah. I really do. Um, and the other comment that's often made <clears throat> about your material is that it's complex. I mean, in the, in the sense that uh, you kind of give us a little bit of understanding of the interconnectivity and the way that the uh, actions of the story are affecting multiple players and the sort of web of actions that are sort of emanating outward from these central actions. And uh, there's a lot of uh, story elements going into, it's not a yeah. simple, you know, one plot fits all uh, approach to a novel. Right. So, uh, and, and the thing is, that approach of a single main character following a single plot line and having everything being centrally focused works really well for writers who can do it. Um, I, the examples I can think of is Kim Butcher, uh, Kim Butcher, excuse me, Jim Butcher and his um, Harry Dresden books or um, Kevin Hearn and his Iron Drood Chronicles, which follow a single protagonist and get or, or Suki Stackhouse in the Charlene Harris um, True Blood series, the right. Suki, Suki books, where they get super, super involved with a single character and know that character incredibly intimately and f get the audience to fall lo in love with that character so much that the audience never loses interest over a very, very long arc. And they do that to incredible success. Oh, uh, Bernard Cornwell with his Richard Sharp series. I think that went something like 22 novels, 25 novels, all of which are amazing. I can't do that. I really can't. Um, I uh, and and I think a lot of it has to do with my own attention span. I'm an incredibly distracted, um, multitasking person who uh, sometimes has a hard time focusing and who is constantly, um, you know, look over here, look over there, bright shiny squirrel. Um, and that on the bad side is something I struggle against because focus and attention to detail are critically important parts of creating art. But to the extent that I can make it serve me is. I really love ensemble narratives. Um, one of the reasons why I love the Game of Thrones stories, uh, Game of Thrones, excuse me, Song of Ice and Fire, I'm getting TVized here, yeah. uh, by George R. R. Martin, uh, because of that proliferating um, number of points of view and this you know, incredibly uh, tangled web of, of interthreading plot lines. Another writer who I really admire, who your listeners may or may not have heard of, is James Clavell, who's most famous for his book Shogun, which was made into a TV miniseries. Right. And these are the writers that I derive the most satisfaction from reading, and so I try to uh, emulate it in my own work. But yeah, if I'm coming across as dark and, com and complicated, I'm super, super happy. Cool. Well, I, I will say this uh, about your ability to create a compelling character. I feel like Schweitzer, I think also he he's a SEAL, he's a very specialized in his training, but in his desire to uh, be a father and a, and, a, and a husband to his family, his, his, his love for them and his desire to do right by them and to protect them, I mean, he's very much an everyman. Uh, um, you know, he's trying to do, do right by those who love him and those whom he loves. And I, I find him uh, very interesting, and it's not just me. I was looking uh, uh, at a, this was a review. I, I'm sorry, uh, I don't know the author's name, but uh, it was reviewed for um, SF Crow's Nest, um, and it was uh, on Amazon. 
um, and the um, person said that uh, Schweitzer is a compelling character whom I enjoyed getting to know in Gemini Cell. It's not hard to cheer him on and hope that at the end of the day, he not only achieves his goal, but finds a measure of peace for himself and his family. And he also hmm. says, uh, I'd also like a hint that at the end of the day, whether Schweitzer succeeds in his mission or not, he will find more than a measure of peace, that he can rest hmm. wherever he ends up, knowing his efforts were not in vain, and if it's not too much to ask, with his humanity intact. Oh, well, that's wonderful. I, I, uh, I don't, uh, I mean, I, I get a lot of reviews, so I don't remember that one specific, but that's really a, a wonderful, a wonderful sentiment. And all I can say is the, the only way you're going to find the answer to that question is reading all the way to the end of Siege Line. Um, but yeah, I, uh, and actually what's funny for me is, um, when people talk about an everyman, um, I really feel kind of like there are no everyman. So, and the, and let me give an example. Writing Schweitzer for me was actually stretching my wings. One of the things I strive to do in every single book is push harder and go farther and do something I haven't done before, um, which is why I'm not just you know rubber stamping out more shadow ops books with the with the principal characters that you've seen in that original trilogy. Um, part of that is my distracted, you know, want to see something new, bright shiny squirrel. Uh, focus. And part of it, though, is a real desire to challenge myself and do something new. So Schweitzer may be an everyman to you, but I am not a husband, not mm -hmm. a father. Um, and that is an experience that is largely alien to me. And I had to really, and in trying to write someone, uh, and I had this a chance to practice with um, Colonel Allen Bookbinder and Fortress Frontier, which Graphic Audio did a great job with um, earlier, to sort of push into this lifestyle, this this experience that was really, really foreign to me. And having to couple that with this hard-bitten, um, you know, direct action warrior operator, Navy SEAL uh, mentality. Now, look, I've had a lot of experience in my life working with and supporting Navy SEALs, but that is not the same as being one. And uh, having to understand that ethic along with the, the husband and family ethic made writing Schweitzer an incredible challenge to me. So it's it's a triple compliment to me uh, to hear that that it's resonating with you and resonating with this uh, <clears throat> reader at uh, at uh, at that uh, who wrote that review. Absolutely. Well, you know, it you don't know until it happens to you um, how how attached or or how strong your feeling for family becomes when you have children and they have children. Uh, I am. I've already booked a flight uh, later this month. Uh, to go out to Portland, Oregon, um, uh, anticipating the birth of my fourth grandchild. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> the due date is January 15th, and shout out to Caroline. Uh, <laughs> and the thing that's funny is uh, when I wrote Gemini Cell, um, I had a niece. Uh, she was much younger, and as she's she's uh, 12 now, and so she's starting to be like a little person. Mm -hmm. um, and she's texting me, and we're talking, and we have a different kind of relationship. So I'm starting to understand a little bit better um look i wouldn't compare being an uncle to being a parent in a million years but at least i'm getting something of that perspective of, of how much it means to people and it's super super helpful to me uh to have that but in the end yeah um in a way like uh i'm, I'm kind of jealous of you man like that's an amazing experience you're getting to have um and uh i uh i enjoy i always say i love other people's kids so much because i love having that experience vicariously
So, so another graphic audio Peter v, uh, author, Peter V. Brett, as you know, um, he, he's uh, an amazing person and my best friend, and he's about to be a father now for the second time. And uh, I am more, I'm as, I am as excited as if it were my own kid. Right. Like I'm, 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 I want to be on speed dial for when the baby comes so that I can go rush to the hospital and get them, you know, get the parents whatever they need. And, and I'm super excited. So I'm, I'm very, very fortunate to have, you know, friends and uh, family members where yeah. I can sort of live the experience vicariously. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool. Yeah. Man, four grandkids. Well done. All women, all girls. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> bring it, bring it, bring in more peace, love, and intelligence into the world. That's right. That <laughs> I'm is a big, all right. Big fan of women and girls. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's see. Is there anything else I need to talk about regarding the series? You mentioned uh, just uh, you know I'll give you a chance to uh, do a little self-aggrandizing. Sure. Um, you mentioned the the television series. Uh, do you want to just uh, give a shout out to you know the network and when it's yeah. when it's coming on? Yeah, to, uh, sure. So, um, so for for your listeners, I'm going to be um, there's a new reality TV series that's going to be on CBS premieres January 22nd at 10 p.m. at least on the East Coast, um, and it's called Hunted. And the basic premise of the show is regular people uh, go on the run. If they can stay hidden for 28 days, they win a quarter of a million dollars. They're in confined to a hundred thousand square mile. Uh, play space, I guess you could say, that's uh, in the southeastern United States. And on their trail, trying to find them, are uh, the A-team of intelligence, law enforcement, and the military. These are all top operators coming out of the special forces, the CIA, the NSA, uh, major police departments across the country pursuing them and i am the cyber guy on the show so uh I, as you know i do cyber threat intelligence um for a major metropolitan police department the largest one in the country and the show is using me but before i did that i did counterterrorism manhunting uh for a lot of the three-letter intelligence agencies down here in dc so between those two skills the show uses me uh to to pursue these uh, to pursue these fugitives and the thing that's so interesting is i don't know what's going to happen i spent two months shooting the show mm -hmm. but i haven't seen it so my my first experience with the show will be the same as yours i'll be seeing it premiere on the 22nd i can say that from the uh, TV commercials that have been posted, uh, it seems like I have a pretty big role because they've been featuring me pretty heavily. But I mean, who knows? I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of on pins and needles. I like the premise. Yeah, it's a really cool idea. And I think it's super topical right now, especially in the post Snowden um, and Manning era when we're very concerned about surveillance and uh, we're, you know, we're really thinking about the role of law enforcement. Um, it's a really, really topical show. I like the idea that it's kind of taking us behind the veil so we can, uh, you know, because I think that's a lot of people feel like, you know, I don't have any special cyber skills. I'm just I'm just a guy. I'm just a, I'm just a gal, uh, you know. And I'm getting all these these warnings that oh, you know, your 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 bank account isn't safe. Your um, you know, your your uh, email isn't safe. And how do I protect myself from these things? And how are these people doing this? And it sounds to me a little bit from the premise of the show that I understand is that we'll kind of get to see some of the tools you guys employ yep. in order to track these people. Yes, you will. You'll get to see everything. And more importantly than that, you get to see us. And that's the thing I really 
am excited about is that I just feel like um, I would love to see the public more proactively engaged with law enforcement with the military. Uh, I, I can't remember when um, when when um, Admiral McMullen was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and he made that speech that less than one percent of Americans serve in uniform. There's uh, I would really love to see. Uh, that rift bridged as much as humanly possible and who knows maybe people will be inspired to you know uh, get a role in law enforcement to join law enforcement maybe will people will get will feel more uh, connected to uh, or or have a better appreciation for the work that law enforcement does in their own community by watching the show a lot of times we see police well first of all we, if, with intelligence agencies we don't see them at all right that's their job is to be invisible and with police you know we see a person on a uniform in a, in a uniform and usually we in it, interact with them either it's negative because they're giving us a speeding ticket or it's positive because they're giving us directions but either way we really don't see the work they do who they are you know it's funny when i was um when i was running the reserve in the coast guard at uh, station new york we had a banner in the squad room which said that success is invisible and failure is unforgettable which i think is absolutely true because when security forces do their jobs right nobody sees you nobody hears about you and nobody knows anything happened right all because the threat was stopped uh, and like, so for example, if someone was planning to do something bad, but they see a, a high presence patrol of Coast Guard in the water and they decide not to do it, no one's ever going to know. Right. But when someone drowns because the Coast Guard couldn't save them, everybody knows and it's a right. major, major And there thing. may have been a hundred successes, but that one failure is going to get the is play. Is the thing that gets the play. Right. Yep. And I'm really hoping that uh, Hunted gives people a window into the actual work that goes on and helps them understand, you know, what the people that are struggling to protect them are doing every day. That sounds like a good note to end on, Mike. Oh, yeah, great. Thanks for having <laughs> me very much. Oh, it's a pleasure as always. And um, I will tell the uh, listeners that uh, I have you doing a cameo, uh, more than a cameo. Uh, you are a, a, a voice in your books. Yep. Uh, so, uh, we will be doing some recording of you in the future as, uh, uh, future installments of the, uh, Shadow Ops, uh, prequel develop. Yep. And so perhaps we might have another chance to uh, update our conversation as well. we'll I see. would, yeah, I would love that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, it's a pleasure as always. Mike Cole, author of the Shadow Ops trilogy and the Shadow Ops prequel novels, uh, produced by Graphic Audio, as well as other novels uh give your uh, information your website and everything so if people sure. want to find out more about you how they can find your books yeah so it's easy because uh, i'm mike with a y so it's m-y-k-e-c-o-l-e -E. so my website is mikecole.com one word m-y-c-m-y-k-e-c-o-l-e.com on twitter at, at mike cole and on facebook at facebook.com forward slash mike cole and amazingly enough i'm now on imdb <laughs> because of the tv show <laughs> so you'll find me there too fantastic all right mike as always, lovely to talk to you. Wish you uh, health, prosperity, uh, continuing, continued thriving as an artist, uh, and uh, I hope we continue to have a relationship uh, producing your material here. Oh, yeah, me audio. too. Me too. I'm super excited moving forward. I'm really looking forward to listening to the production. Thanks also to all of your listeners uh, for supporting uh, my my books at Graphic Audio and all the great Graphic Audio authors, many of whom are are uh, our dear friends. And thanks to Graphic Audio for all the great work you guys do. Our pleasure. We would like to thank Mike Cole for taking the time to talk to us. 
All three books of the Reawakening Trilogy will be released upcoming in 2017. The first book, Gemini Cell, will make its appearance in the next few weeks. Also, don't forget to check out Mike's new TV show, Hunted, which will premiere on January 22nd on CBS. So be on the lookout for that. For more information on how to purchase our graphic audio titles, please call us at 1-800-670-5220 or visit us on the web at www.graphicaudio.net and www.graphicaudiointernational.net where you can purchase our titles in audio CD format or in one of our download formats, MP3, M4B, and FLAC. And you can listen to your downloads anytime, anywhere with our free Graphic Audio Access app, available for Apple and Android devices. Make sure you sign up for our e-newsletter, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter.